All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Peter. In this session, we're going to be looking at the very last paragraph of the letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. So this is the final wrap-up to the letter of 1 Peter. And in context, Peter has just called all of them, the, the believers, the churches, to be humble in relationship to one another. And so he picks up at that point, he picks up with humility, but now in relation to God. And he says, in short, that our humility towards one another is is connected to our humility before God. And then he gives several other exhortations related to that as he wraps things up here in the letter. So chapter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Notice that verse 6 begins with therefore. That is, because God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud, as he just said in verse 5. In view of that, in view of how important humility is, and in view of the fact that God gives grace to the people who are humble, humble yourself under God, he says. Uh, God is the sovereign. He is the creator. He alone is eternal and infinite. And we, we are his creatures. We are limited. We are fallen. We're broken and in need of repair. And God has graciously provided that repair force in the person of Jesus. So our proper posture before God is humility, both by virtue of creation and by virtue of redemption. Uh, we stand before God humbly. And notice what Peter says here. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's hand speaks of God's power and care. For example, Isaiah 48, God's hand made the heavens and the earth, uh, Isaiah 48, 13. Or Isaiah 64, 8, we are clay and God is the potter and we are the work of his hand. Or in Job chapter 12, verse 10, in God's hand is the life of every living thing. Uh, The psalmist prays, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Or listen to Psalm 18, verses 15 and 16. It says, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. God's hand speaks of his power and his sovereignty and his care. God's hand in scripture sometimes speaks of his judgment. And so to humble ourselves under his mighty hand makes perfect sense. His hand represents his power and his work and all that that entails. So Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then there's a promise attached to that humbling, right? Notice what he says, that he, God, may exalt us in due time. That exalt means to lift up, to move us from positions of lowliness to positions of that are more exalted and raised up. God, God's going to exalt his people. And so that's the promise. And that exalting may happen in this age, right? He may lift us out of lowliness. He may lift them out of their persecution and their smallness, perhaps in this age, but certainly in the age to come. And Peter has repeatedly emphasized the importance of keeping your eyes on that. That is the ultimate exaltation is when the Lord comes again. 
And then he goes on in verse 7 and says that part of what's involved in humbling ourselves under God is trusting him with our worries and concerns. Look at verse 7. He says, casting or having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And that picture of casting is powerful. It's the idea of tossing them to God to handle and deal with. Here, God, this is yours. It's not mine to carry. It belongs to you. You're stronger and far more suited to carry it than me. So casting it on him, tossing it to him. And anxiety here refers to, this is important to make sure we don't misunderstand this point, it refers to specific concerns, not this general mode of anxiety that sometimes afflicts people for medical reasons or other reasons. It really refers to specific concerns. So when it says your anxiety, it means something you are specifically concerned about. Obviously, one of those for the original readers was their suffering and the hostility and ridicule they were facing because of their faith in Jesus. And then some of the social issues that 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 was causing in their jobs or marriage or whatever else it was. So cast those specific concerns on him. Now, whatever concerns we might face, cast it on the Lord. Like, Lord, you're better suited to deal with this than me. Give me wisdom, direct me, help me to know where to go with this. I trust you with it. You're the one that can take care of me. And then God can exalt us in due time. God can take care of us. And notice that's where he goes. He says, why can we do this? Why can you cast all your anxiety on the Lord? Well, because he cares for you. Uh, He gives grace and favor to those who are humble. And that includes this humility of casting our concerns on him. Then Peter follows up this instruction with instruction about resisting the devil. So cast your cares on God and resist the devil. He says this in verse 8, be of sober spirit. That We've seen that word before in Peter, right? It's this idea of being level-headed. Be on the alert. That's be watchful, be vigilant. So keep your head clear, uh, be vigilant, be alert, right? And watchful. Why? Your adversary The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, there is an arch enemy of God and of God's people. His name is the devil. There really is an adversary, an arch enemy. And though the original readers were suffering at the hands of humans, the real enemy is spiritual. And the New Testament affirms this over and over again. Um, Lying behind... Human hostility is an arch enemy of God, and his name is the devil. And the Greek word for devil is diabolos. Generically, the word diabolos just means slanderer. But this word is always the word in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's used to translate the Hebrew word Satan, or the Satan, which means adversary. And Peter pictures him here as a lion on the prowl. The word prowl literally is just walking. But in view of the context, a roaring lion, prowl kind of captures that feel, that sense a little bit more. And that's why we must be vigilant and watchful and clear-minded, sober, right? We must do that because there is an enemy who's seeking someone to devour. He's wanting to 
to chew us up and spit us out is the idea, right? We must not minimize the reality of spiritual enemies, the devil and his minions that are looking to destroy us as followers of Jesus. And so Peter says, be watchful, be mindful of that. And then he goes on in verse nine and says, resist him. Look at what he says. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. This is our basic stance towards the devil. Stand your ground. Resist. The New Testament regularly asserts this. Not take ground, right? It's stand your ground. Resist him. For example, in the well-known Armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul repeatedly says, stand, stand firm, like hold your ground, like just stand put, right? That's our basic stance. James, in James chapter 4, in a context really with similar themes that Peter shows here, James simply says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Um, And so that's our basic stance towards the devil as followers of Jesus is just to stand firm. Stand our ground. And notice that what Peter says here in verse 9 is that their sufferings, the hostility they're experiencing, well, that's part of the devil's attacks. Um, Lying behind the hostility towards God's people is the devil, Peter says. Though humans and human authority figures might be the instruments, Peter here and the New Testament elsewhere regularly pictures that the spiritual authorities are the ones ultimately lying behind those attacks. And our job is to resist by simply remaining faithful to Jesus. And Peter specifically reminds them that the kinds of attacks they are experiencing, the suffering and hostility that they're experiencing for their faith in Jesus, well, guess what? They're being experienced by your brothers and sisters who are in the world, by the rest of your Christian family. So they're not alone. The kind of hostility they're suffering is somewhat normal, and to be expected for followers of Jesus. Then Peter goes on in verse 10 and 11 to reassure them that the end of the story for them is good. Look what he says, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, after the devil and his minions through human people and human authority figures have made life miserable for you for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter really ends the the bulk of the letter here. The final moment is once again reminding them and reminding us that there's an end of the story, that the story is progressing to a, a, a point called his eternal glory in Christ. That there is going to come a day when All that is wrong will be undone. All that is sad will be replaced with joy. All that is broken will be replaced with perfect health and working. That God himself, for us and for the world and for us together, corporately as God's people, he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And so Peter has this little doxology in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And the idea of dominion is kingship, right? Reigning and rulership. And so God is going to be all in all and his kingdom will come and fill the whole world someday. Our job is just to remain 
faithful, even if we suffer for a little while. Like compared to all eternity, uh, the sufferings of now are just a brief moment on the timeline of our life. And so stay faithful, stand firm, Peter says, because God is going to ultimately be uh, King of kings and Lord of lords and rectify all things. Well, at that point in the letter of 1 Peter, all that's left then is the sign-off for the letter. And so in verses 12 through 14, that's what we get. We get the sign-off. And here's how Peter signs off the letter. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, there's a good chance that at this moment, Peter picks up the pen and he's going to pin the last little bit because he's been dictating the letter. That's very common practice in the ancient world. We see it in Paul's writing sometimes where it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, right, where he picks up the pen at the end. We've seen, we see this in just kind of uh, fragments of Greco-Roman letters we have from the first and second century where the, the last little bit of the letter is actually written with a different penmanship. And so this was a fairly common practice, and this may be what's going on here, although it's not clear. What does seem fairly clear is that Silvanus, in some sort of way, helped Peter write this letter. Now, it's possible that means simply uh, was the mailman for the letter. But more likely is that Silvanus was the scribe, the secretary to whom Peter dictated the letter. And then Silvanus uh, wrote this letter down. Who's Silvanus? Well, it's Silas. Silvanus is his full name. Silas is his shortened name. Silas, who traveled with Paul on a second missionary journey and became a co-worker of Paul. Silas, who was originally from the Jerusalem church. Um, from very early times, and thus knew Peter well from his days working together in the Jerusalem church, as you can see in the early chapters of Acts. And so he apparently was the scribe to whom Peter dictated the letter. And Peter summarizes the letter here as testifying that this is the true grace of God. That's the sort of summary phrase for what the letter is all about. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So even though you're being shamed for it, even though you're being rejected by people and treated badly by Jews and Gentiles alike, perhaps, don't doubt it. This really is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, Peter says. And that's how he wraps up the letter. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does my son Mark. Who's the one that's in Babylon? Well, probably Babylon is just a cipher, a code word for the church in Rome. Babylon in the Old Testament was the, the ultimate enemy of God's people who took them away, took Judah away into captivity, into exile. And thus in Jewish thinking, she sort of became sort of like an archetype of um, empires that are opponents of God's people and God's way. And so when Peter says, she who is in Babylon... Who's the empire that's causing problems? Well, Rome. And um, the best we can tell, Peter's in Rome when he writes this letter. So he's probably referring to the church in Rome. Uh, that is, she who is in Babylon, i.e. Rome, chosen together with you. The church in Rome, chosen together with you, another part of God's chosen people, sends you her greetings. And 
So does my son, Mark, he says. Who's Mark? Well, Mark is John Mark. We first meet him in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts. You see him in Acts chapter 12. His family home was a meeting place for the church in Jerusalem from the earliest times. In fact, his family home may have been the place where the Last Supper took place. So he's been connected to the the, to Jesus and to the church for a very long time. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas on the first journey uh, and then went home halfway through that journey. Uh, the earliest traditions of the church note him as the author of the gospel that bears the name Mark, and they describe that gospel as the memoirs of the apostle Peter. And so Mark was uh, both a colleague of Paul and of Peter and seems to have pinned um, a gospel uh, from Peter's memoirs about Jesus that we know as the gospel of Mark. So that's who this guy is. So so does my son Mark. He sends his greeting. He's with Peter apparently in Rome when this letter is written. And then the last two lines of the letter of 1 Peter are this. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And those are the last two lines that we have here in verse 14. And notice what he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. This was a form of family-like greeting. We see uh, something similar in Romans 16, 16, where the apostle Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so it was a way of expressing family-like uh, warmth and affection among the people of God. So greet one another with a kiss of love, peace, be to you all who are in Christ. May the shalom of God be upon you who are in Christ. And with that, Peter signs off and the letter of 1 Peter comes to an end.